Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, Balak. This week, Nahama Goldman Barash discusses Balak. Nahama Goldman Barash is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Nahama Goldman Barash. The sin of the children of Israel with Balpur and Moab end the Parsha and serve as the introduction to the next Parsha, Pinchas. After Bilam blesses the people, and the chosenness of the people seems assured, backed by divine protection, the scene shifts abruptly. In chapter 25, verses 1 and 2, we read, Vayashav Yisrael bashitim, vayachel ha'am liznot el bnot Moab, v'tikran ala'am lezivche Elohehen, v'yochal ha'am v'yishtachavu la'elohehen. And Israel dwelt in Shitim, and the people began to stray after Moabite women. And they called the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate, and they prostrated themselves before their gods. In these two psukim, we see that B'nai Yisrael sink very low, and this is reinforced by a word used in the opening verse of the passage. They begin liznot, a word that literally means fornication or sexual relations between two people unmarried to one another, most specifically adultery. It is a word associated with betrayal and transgression towards society, and most significantly, towards God. Not only is there znut, but there are also sacrifices to other gods, and wild feasting and prostrating. It very much reminds us of the scene in the wake of the building of the golden calf, where the people also got up to rejoice and feast and prostrate. God's anger burns, and we will find out that 24,000 die in a plague as a result. Moses is about to render justice to those involved when the story comes to a climax. An Israelite man, later named as the prince of the tribe of Simon, Zimri, son of Salu, and a Midianite woman, later named as Cosby, come to have relations before the children of Israel, and particularly, most tellingly, before Moses. This explicit manifestation of the Znut causes the entire congregation to break down in tears at the entrance of the tent of meeting. There is no more possibility of pretense. What was hidden is now exposed. Even the leadership has become corrupted, with a prince, a proud perpetrator of this behavior. The nation is forced to confront its accessions. It is in this moment that Pinchas sees an axe, slaying both man and woman, and in one moment appeasing God and bringing the people back to the proper path. How did the children of Israel come to these acts of promiscuity and idolatry with the daughters of Moab? There is a Midrashic tradition in which the daughters of Moab dressed themselves up to go out to war and seduce the enemy. They used their feminine wiles to bring down the helpless men of Israel, who then become, became embroiled in this untenable situation and were punished severely by God. This idea helps illustrate the treachery and perversion displayed by the enemies in targeting the Israelites, ultimately bringing down on them more effectively God's wrath than Bilaam was able to do, with his curses turned into blessings at the beginning of the Parsha. Looking more closely at a related Midrash in Sifrei Bamidbar, an early Tanaitic Midrash dating back to the 3rd century CE, we read, And Israel sat in Shittim, bimkom hasatot, in the place of sitot, or straying. So there's a word play here that Shittim is really sitot, and listot is to stray. 
באותה שעה עמדו עמונים ומואבים ובנו להם כלים מבית הישימות ועד הר השלג. So the Midrash tells us that at that time the עמונים and מואבייטס arose and built markets for themselves from בית הישימות until הר שלג. And they placed in these markets women. who would sell flaxen garments. V'hayu Yisrael ochlim v'shotin. And the Israelites, and I, I do want to point out that in all of the narratives and in the Torah, we're talking about the men who are straying. Um, they approach the women, they eat and they drink, and in this case they're eating and drinking in the marketplaces that have been established by the Ammonites and the Moabites for the purpose, as we'll see, of bringing down or turning Israel towards sin as opposed to towards God. And here the Midrash explains exactly what happened. Bauta שעה, אדם יוצא לטייל בשוק ומבקש לקח לו חפץ מן הזקנה. So What would happen is an Israelite would go out to walk in the marketplace, seemingly an innocent activity. He'd want to buy something, one of the flax and garments on sale, and there would be an old woman standing at the booth, and she would offer it to him, b'shivyav, at cost. V'ktana kore lo v'omra lo mibifnim, bo v'kach lecha b'pachot. And a young woman would be inside the tent, and she would say to him, come buy it for less, and he would do so. And this would then happen the next day and the day after. And the third day, she said to him, and it's always on the third day because the third day is a chazaka, it's already a, 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 a presumption of a certain type of behavior. And she says to him, come in and pick it out for yourself. You know, you might as well just come in. You're already like one of the family. You're a ben bayit here. And he obliged. And when she walks in, there's a tzirtzor malei yayin, a pitcher filled with ammonite wine. Ammonite wine is particularly pungent and potent, and it's the wine um, of idolaters, but the wine of idolatry, says the Midrash, has not yet been forbidden. So up until this point, he has actually done nothing wrong. Nothing in the narrative suggests wrongdoing or transgression, but it does suggest a form of familiarity with the Ammonites and the Moabites, and that is what's going to lead to the next step. She then asked him, would you like to drink some wine? He obliged, sure, it's not prohibited. And when the wine burned in him, he said to her, consent to me. In other words, he propositions her. They're here in the tent. He's now getting quite drunk on this very potent wine that she's given him, and he asks her permission, consent to me, meaning Let's do this. At which point she took an image of Poor from under her breastband and said to him, Well, if you want this to take place, then you have to bow to this. And he says to her, Can I bow down to idolatry? Can I do this? It's prohibited for me. She then said, What difference does it make to you? I am only asking that you bury yourself before him. In other words, you just have to undress. That's all that's required here. And he did so, because at that point he was really quite ready for this act, and the undressing is part of the act, and um, it didn't cost him anything. And from here, Chazal understood, bearing oneself is its worship. The Midrash highlights the elaborate part planning on the part of the women, old and young, to entice the Israelite men into the tent. And at the moment of weakness, when they are about to perform the sexual act, the man is forced to make a choice, continue on, and in the process, worship an idol, or back down. Of course, 
he's at a point of no return. And the act of worship is virtually synonymous with the sexual, with the sexual act. In this narrative, the women are the active partners, and the men are almost innocent victims, lured to their sin inadvertently. All they were looking for was a flax garment, and then perhaps a little wine, and then a good time. But of course, all actions have consequence. One thing leads to another. And in this case, the consequence is the betrayal of the Kedusha, or the sanctity expected of God's chosen people. To reinforce this idea of znut as more than an act of sexual betrayal, but a word that carries within it fundamental rejection of God's word, we will read a few verses in Exodus 34, verses 12 to 16. So the passage warns that you guard yourself lest you forge a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you come, lest that be a snare in your midst. And then the passage continues, I'm skipping to verse 15. So what we find out is, lest you forge a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and stray after the gods and offer sacrifices to their gods that they call you and you eat of their sacrifice. And then it continues, And you may take of their daughters for your sons, and when their daughters go astray after their gods, they will cause your sons to go astray after their gods. So we have the word zanu, znut, to describe the act of worshiping other gods, despite the fact that your daughter, your sons are marrying their daughters. In other words, this is not promiscuous sexuality that is being described. That is not the reason the word zanu is being used. It's describing a different form of betrayal. In this passage, God warns against political alliances with the Canaanites in the land, for that will lead to intermarriage, which will ultimately lead to a turning away from one God towards other gods. Political stability and alliance with non-Israelites will lead to a stable social structure in which two cultures, religions, will come together. This then might lead to a complete loss of identity, which will ultimately lead to idolatry or a complete assimilation into another culture. This is very different than the usage of Zanu or Znut as we used it in our passage about the daughters of Moab, because the sexual relations that would be taking place would be within the marital framework. And so that is not, in fact, the source of Znut. The Znut here is about the worship of other gods, and the betrayal is solely towards God. In our parsha Balak, the sexual relations are those of promiscuity, but here the Torah is taking a word that almost exclusively refers to uh, sexual betrayal and applies it as well to describe the possible betrayal of B'nai Israel towards God when they worship other gods. This, of course, heightens the sense that God and Israel are wedded to one another. They were wedded, says the Midrash, at Mount Sinai, and fidelity is expected actually absolutely necessary for the relationship to have integrity. Infidelity towards one another through harlotry or through idol worship are both manifestations of the betrayal towards God. What I find fascinating about our story in our Parsha is that it comes immediately after the victory of Israel, the spiritual victory, as well as the physical victory, over Balak and Bilam, thanks to God's direct intervention. Matovu ohalecha Yaakov, how Precious are the tents of Jacob. How ironic that they immediately begin to sin in their tents. And in the case of Zimri and Cosby, they take what is inside the tent to outside of the tent. 
Miracles, it seems, are not enough to ensure religious commitment. Neither is the wrath of God, which is unleashed over and over again in the book of Numbers, but doesn't seem to stem the tide of transgression and rebellion that takes place over and over again. For that reason, I would like to look at one more reference to the word form Zanu or Znut. It appears in Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. Ve'yomer Hashem al Moshe le'mor, daber al b'nei Yisrael va'amarta le'hem va'asu le'hem tzitzit, al-kanfei v'gdehem l'doratam v'nanu al-tzitzit ha'kanav p'tel t'chelet. Va'ayal lachem l'tzitzit, uritem oto ezkartem et kol mitzvot Hashem, va'asitem otam v'lo taturu acharei levavchem v'acharei nechem asher atem zonim acharei. The Lord said to Moses as follows, Speak to the Israelite people and instruct them to make for themselves fringes on the corners of their garments throughout the ages. Let them attach a cord of blue to the fringe at each corner. That shall be your fringe. Look at it and recall all the commandments of the Lord and observe them, so that you do not follow your heart and eyes in your lustful urge. Thus you shall be reminded to observe all my commandments and to be holy to your God. I, the Lord, am your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I, the Lord, your God. This is an amazing passage, for here we recognize, or God recognizes, that the tzitzit will be a form of protection against the heart and the eyes following lustful urges. So what I want to bring to you now is an amazing Midrashic story, really one of my favorites, that chooses to introduce a prostitute into a story about tzitzit in order to fully illustrate how the tzitzit can protect against znut. It has humor, but also a very deep message, and ultimately a positive word about uh, the capability of even the most disreputable to make the choice to turn their lives around. This story appears in Menachot 44a. There was once a man who was particularly careful about the commandment of tzitzit. He heard that there was a prostitute in a town by the sea who took 400 gold coins as her price. He sent her 400 gold coins and sent a time to come to her. When his time came, he went. She said, let him come in. When he entered, she had prepared for him seven beds, six of silver and one of gold. She went up and sat naked on the top bed. As he was climbing up to sit with her, and he is also naked, except for his tzitzit. The four strings of his tzitzit smacked him in the face. He fell down, down, down he goes. She came down and said, by the city of Rome, I will not let you rest until you tell me what blemish you saw in me. I have to pause to say, why do the women always think it's about them? Here's this beautiful woman at the highest end of her profession getting 400 gold coins. She's getting the money anyway, and all she wants to know is, what's wrong with me? Why don't you like me? He said, I have never seen a more beautiful woman than you, but there is one commandment that God commanded us, and tzitzit is its name. Now, of course, there are far more than one commandment that God has commanded us, but the tzitzit in this moment represents everything this man believes in, and he recognizes in this moment that he's about to lose it all. So 613 become distilled into one, and the tzitzit represent everything. Now the tzitzit are witnesses against me. She said to him, I will not let you rest until you tell me what your name is, the name of your city, the name of your teacher, and the name of the school in which you learn this Torah. He wrote it down. She got up and divided her possessions. At this point, the man has left. The prostitute is so impressed with the ability of this man to stop because of this garment at a moment of passion and revert from what he was doing 
revert back from what he was doing, that she changes her life. She gives one-third of her possessions to the government. She pays off her taxes. One-third she gives to the poor, which shows that she really is a righteous woman. And one-third she keeps, including the sheets from the bed. She came to the house of study of Rabbi Chia, and she said, Rabbi, command me and make me a convert. This is very surprising to Rabbi Chia. He says, my daughter, have you set your eyes on one of the students? Are you here because you want to get married? She took out the paper and gave it to him. And clearly she tells him the story. And he then says to her, go and enjoy your purchase. What he does here is actually quite interesting because normally it's men who acquire women in marriage. And in this case, the woman is so heroic and so active and so um, committed to changing her life to one of spirituality, that he treats her as the man. And he basically says, you go acquire your possession, your, your, not your possession, but your acquisition. In other words, you go acquire the man. Then the sheets which she had spread for him in prohibition, she now spread lawfully. And the message here at the end is also very beautiful, that it is the antithesis of Znut when the sheets are spread on the marital bed. And so here's this woman who is bringing all the tricks of her trade into her bedroom, into her marriage, into her marital bedroom. And now it's lawful. What was Znut at the beginning of the story is no longer Znut, it is Kedusha, it is sanctity. Miracles, even divine revelation, are not enough to ensure an ongoing relationship with God. As with all relationships, it's in the mundane and often tedious performance of the same mitzvot, day in and day out, that continue to remind and bind the people to their commitment to God and Torah. But that too is not really enough. Passively performing mitzvot may spark some spiritual feeling, but it is more uh, likely to be experienced as a meaningless chore. Ultimately, meaningfulness is a function of allowing an action to be meaningful by creating a context for that meaning. It is not enough to wear the tzitzit. They have to serve as a vehicle for spiritual transformation. Perhaps not every day, but in the case of the story we just read, at least on this one day. That is something that the prostitute in the story understands and is impressed by, that a garment with fringes can ultimately redirect a seemingly inevitable choice. Here, too, the man is at a point of no return. But unlike the men in the tents in the Midrash earlier in the podcast, who are unable to stop, the man's tzitzit refocus him even at the last minute when this is what he most wants to do. For this reason, she gives up her former life to pursue something entirely different. It puts the source of spirituality inside of us rather than outside. The man was wearing the tzitzit externally, but something internally had to happen to make the external meaningful. Put another way, spirituality is not something that happens to you from the outside, but something you have to make happen from the inside. This is something that the children of Israel are still figuring out at this point in the Torah. In next week's Parsha Pinchas, we will have a different sort of role model, the daughters of Slavchad, who will show religious integrity and absolute fidelity towards the word of God and will be representative of the potential of the new generation about to enter the land of Israel. Thank you, Nechama. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Jerusalem.